I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, uh, welcome uh, to this event uh, uh, with Andre. Um, my name is Brian Dillon. Uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here to talk about this uh, really rich uh, and fascinating collection of essays. Um, thanks so much uh, to Claire and her colleagues uh, at the LRB shop. The LRB has been doing fantastic things uh, during this lockdown and uh, all of uh, last year, keeping up uh, at such an impressive um, program uh, of events and conversations. Um, Andre, uh, this is such a, a rich collection of essays. Later on, I want to ask you maybe what essay means to you uh, as a form. Um, this is a book that covers so many aspects uh, of your own life, um, so many different periods of your life, so many of the writers and artists that clearly have meant so much to you for a long time, including uh, Proust, um, uh, W.G. Sebald, the films of Eric Romer. It's a book that itself roams um, geographically um, between cities mostly. Um, we find you in Rome, in Alexandria, in Paris, in New York, in St. Petersburg uh, and elsewhere. And all of that is stuff that I want to, to return to. In some ways, I think one of my favorite uh, of the essays comes quite late in the book. And uh, it's the one that is titled Almost There. And it's, a, it's a, one of the shortest pieces. And it's a piece in which you say early, or perhaps at the very beginning of, uh, of the essay, I am an almost writer, which is a very particular phrasing. Not I am almost a writer, but I am an almost writer. And I'd love if you could maybe start us off by saying what you mean by, by that sentence. Well, I, I wanted to be ambiguous about it because I could have said that because I don't consider myself really a full-fledged writer. Um, I think that people who, when you ask them, what do you do? They'll say, I'm an author. Um, I've never said such a thing. It's it's almost intimidating and it goes against everything I stand for. As an almost writer, it's because I always like to use the word almost uh, because it sort of mollifies or sort of mutes any kind of statement I am about to make. It just dulls it a tiny bit so that I'm taking it away from an absolute statement, which I never have. I for example, I sometimes will avoid naming a character. I much rather let you guess of what sex that person is, or I will never give a character a name. Uh, it's just that I hate absolutes of any kind. And so I've found myself constantly using the adverb almost. 
and and so I call myself an almost writer. I use it all the time. I can't help myself. I use it in my classrooms, in my work. It's just my way of approaching and avoiding certainties because I don't think that there are any certainties in life. And anybody who claims that there are is just simply mistaken or obtuse. Uh, uncertainty and ambiguity um, and lots of related terms and so sometimes in the book you give us these very rich kind of almost incantatory list of, of these kinds of related terms, qualities that attract you in other people's work or in life or that you might be aiming for in your own writing. I really like that almost stands for something very, very small here, that it's literally a word that you find yourself using. Do you find that you ever have to excise the almosts? Is there is there uh, at yeah. times an excess of almosts? Yes, there is a glut of them. So, and I find myself frequently saying, "Okay, this is not an almost situation. You just wrote it automatically, but it's very clearly this or that. So you cannot hide behind the almost." But again, an almost is an adverb that allows us to sort of cast a shadow over things. And I happen to like shadows because, as I said, I don't believe we have anything that's transparent to us ever. And if we think we, are, we see transparency or the obvious, I hate the obvious because nothing ever is obvious. People are not obvious. Uh, my feelings for people change by the minute. So, I know I don't even know if I like, for example, I've written about Rome a great, great deal. Do I like Rome? I suppose so, but I'm not sure. I almost like Rome. And this goes for a litany of other things as well. So this this sense of kind of uncertainty, of ambiguity, um, sometimes it's kind of sense of uh, of drift, sometimes of unreality. I guess this um, this is what you're addressing in the in the, the title uh, of the book, Homo Irrealis. Can you say a little bit uh, about that? Because that seems to kind of open us back up towards the specifics to think about places, to think about moments in your life, to think about artists and writers. Well, it's, for example, using the word irrealis was using a term. It's a term that many linguists know, don't even know. They don't even know it exists and they don't know what it means. So the whole concept of, you know, there's a book called Homo Ludens, which is man, man who likes to play or to play games. Uh, there's all many kind of Homo uh, books and titles. And I figured that for me, the one that makes perfect sense is Irrealis, which is a time zone, if it is a time zone, that does not really exist because it's the might have been where do you locate the might have been? And we live every day with might have been, might have done, I should have done this and not said that. How many times do we say that to ourselves? And we live in this mock past, which is the might have been. And then we also live in this mock future, this seemingly future, but it's not even a conditional. It's, I might want to be that, I might want to do this, I might want to go there. It doesn't mean that you will or that you think you actually do want to, but it's how we fantasize and remember. Those are the two dimensions of our lives. To live in the present under the midday sun, as I like to say, is almost impossible.
I was reminded when you when you when you talk about this in the book um, of uh, a passage in one of um, Adam Phillips's books where where he talks about the unlived life and he says that actually most of life is the unlived life. I I totally agree. I totally agree. It's it's very true. It, it, our lives are unlived. The the lived life. I mean, when you think about the things you remember, the things you remember are not necessarily moments in the past. There are moments in the past that you regret having done something or that you should have done that. Those are really the ones that hurt. It's the ones where you return to the past, to 10, 20, 30 years in the past, and say, I should have said that when they asked me this. I should have done that when so-and-so was available and I never took advantage of it. The, things like that, those are our lives. The unlived life, I totally agree. So, for a writer who, you know, in, in your fiction, you are so invested and interested in human intimacy, one of the things that, that struck me in this book is, is how much these are essays frequently, when they touch on your own experience or they touch on the possibility of, of intimacy, are quite specifically about what didn't happen, the, the roads not followed. And so, there well, are moments... No, no, I, I totally agree with you because the things that we remember are not necessarily our quote-unquote conquest. They are the people that we failed to have, to failed to have been loved by, or failed to have done what we should have done. And that's, I think, the itinerary of my life. The incidents I recall are not the ones that were sort of fructifying and were filled with bliss, but those that could have been. Those are the ones that stay in your craw and you can't, can't digest them because they still ask to be lived, though you never will live them. That's the other thing. I mean, take, for example, in Call Me By Your Name, you have a character called Elio, and uh, Elio's, I think his whole first two chapters are in his head. They're all taking place in his head. Nothing is happening between him and uh, Oliver, okay? It's it's the funny part, and, and it could easily, easily have stayed that way, all in his head, and never even materialized, never happened, never become what it is for, not just for the book, but for the public, who basically use it as a model for what love can be. So there are moments in some of the, especially I think in some of the earlier uh, essays in the book, where you describe periods in your childhood or or uh, early adult life of of this kind of this this moment of possibility. And sometimes these are kind of moments of of possible sexual experience that is that is uh, held at some distance because of accident or uh, some kind of reserve, or simply because desire is not reciprocated, or ver these ver various moments. But one of the most striking is this um, description of a moment, is it on a bus or? Uh, it's on a bus, on, yes. Yes, on a bus, where a young man uh, who's, who's a little, I've, I've forgotten now exactly how old you are in, in this scene. Oh, I might have been 15, I think, 15. But he is, he's older. He's, a, he's yeah. not much, but five, five or six years older. And he touches you, he presses himself against you. And, and this moment 
ramifies in your in your mind in your in the ensuing weeks months it becomes a kind of maybe it's maybe it's best for me to, to hand over at this point I, w I wonder how you would think about that that particular instance in terms of this um where that leads you as a as a young person not just in terms of desire or sexuality or in, in a future that might open there but also as an artist, as a writer, because it leads you in this particular essay to start experiencing art, sculpture, the world in such a very, very different way without anything specifically sexual or physical happening, right? Well, that's that's the almost dimension. I mean, I almost had a sexual encounter there. And I, I think I was possibly very thrilled by it, but it never happened, nothing came of it. You know, it's just an incident in a bus which in Italy, since everything is sort of, everyone is collided together, must happen all the time. And, but it meant something to me. And uh, I was trying to, because that's what interests me. It's not the experience itself. It's the resonance, the echo, the sort of the afterlife of a particular event that spills over and begins to take all kinds of shapes. Had I been a writer back then, which I probably was already in many ways, I would have written something about the incident, but I didn't do that. Instead, I went looking at statues, and this, my experience on the bus was sort of, sort of what projected on the statues. And I realized that these are beautiful statues. Mind you, I was reading that very evening when that incident in the bus happening happened. I was e reading for free because you could go there and just sit and read. Craft Ebbing which is probably the most, uh, at the time, it was the most sort of uh, pornographic book that didn't want to be pornographic because it was a doctor's manual. But they had all kinds of tales, and each one of them, like reading, for example, the description of sickness, when you read these books, you have every single sickness. Uh, you know, if you have a cough, you have that particular disease. But when I was reading Kraft Ebbing, oh my God, that's me. No, 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 that's me. No, that's me too. And you find yourself, oh my God, how could that be? And then I realized one thing as a writer that you, you sort of take stock of is that everybody, every single human being on this planet experiences the same things. Uh, we are almost everything. Uh, and I don't want to exaggerate the use of the word almost, but it is as if we are, we're not just individual X with citizenship this and religion that and this kind of family situation living in such and such a city in such and such a state uh, with such and such a zip code. Um, we're not that. Remove all those things and you have a free-floating identity that doesn't know what it is. And now if you attach or disattach every concept of time from that individual, so that you've even removed that. In other words, there is no such thing, no, no such thing as the past or the future or the present. You're just drifting in time. Then you are really without any barriers and you have no confines whatsoever. And therefore, you are everybody. And I think that in my writing, the fundamental assumption is that we are all everybody. We don't have one identity. We are like Jesus said when he asked the girl who was possessed by Satan 
how many of you are there? Meaning, how many Satans are there? And they answered, we are legion. Uh, in other words, we are at least 20. And we are at least 20 people inside of us. And I totally believe that. So on on the one hand we are if we if we follow if we follow you here we are everybody but this everybody or the the production of this everybody or this version of yourself this is we're thinking of one of the things we're talking about here is youth isn't it um and a, and a sense of the possibility of different selves and one of the places that you find that in in some of these essays that recount experiences in Alexandria in Rome later on in uh, in New York is through artists and uh, and writers and filmmakers um and the the three long uh linked essays on the films of eric romer seem seem to kind of follow from from what you're describing here in terms of a kind of sense of making a, a self uh, and a creative self um out of possibilities that uh, that are diverse and uh, and and uh, and kind of free-floating um, I was really struck in your description of, of watching Romer's films uh, in the 1970s and uh, early 80s by my own uh, viewing of those maybe you know five or ten years later in, in the 80s on TV and having very much the same kind of experience uh, of thinking here is a world let's call that world France for, for want of a better word. Yeah. Yes, in, in, which, in which people sit around, not just loving or desiring each other or have, having interactions with each other and, and the city, um, but talking about it as it happens and talking about it in the most extraordinary uh, terms, as if, as if, you know, casually philosophizing their, their situation in the world. I really wonder how you think about an experience, an artistic experience like that uh, in your 20s, how you revisit it now. Um, you describe it very much as a kind of way of watching these films and thinking about how the men behave in them. And you, you come back to that a, uh, a number of times in these, these three essays. Yeah. You think looking at these men and, and seeing them as kind of models for the possibility of what it would mean to be a man. I wonder if you look at films like that now in a, in a different way as an older man. Well, that's exactly the change. I mean, when I went to see My Night at Maud's, I think the man in the film is 34 years old and he's now converted to Catholicism and he will not sleep with any women, though in his past, women came easily to him. I was 20 years old when I saw this and I was, by and large, having a hard time with a girl that I was, I think, madly in love with. And I wanted to think of this man as a look at him, learn from him. What is it to learn? In other words, you are who you are and you're not this kind of person who's going to go from one woman to another. But try to learn and try to justify who you are vis-a-vis -vis him. And later when I saw the film again, and I've seen it many, many times, I've even taught it. Um, what happens is that you, you become 50 years old and you're looking at the 34-year-old, and then you're remembering the 20-year-old you were, and, my, and then you begin to say, oh, how silly I was. Why did I even worry about those things? Now I'm past that age. Um, one of the things that I've done in this book is to try to borrow every, every conceivable author, composer, film director, poet, try to borrow from them what I think they could teach me. They may not have meant any of it, and I was misreading them. 
but nevertheless i was trying to tap into each one in order to learn something ultimately about myself because i'm not interested in them i'm not interested in the life of beethoven i'm trying to understand something that beethoven can teach me and this is where i was when with the films of eric romer i saw all of them within the space of a year i think in the the seven the six moral co uh, tales as they're called i saw them and i never quite liked anything else he's done though i've seen all his films the problem was with the moral tales they were all about situations that i was for a time in my life not always plenty familiar with men who desire women and who find sort of correlates or surrogate pleasures with those in other words in claire's knee all he wants is not to sleep with claire he just wants to touch her knee well that's baloney that's not possible if you're that attracted to someone you want to sleep with them you don't want to touch them but he's found this out and in my night at mods he he's in bed with this woman who is a brunette and wants to sleep with him wants to make love to him and he refuses because he's a good catholic and in chloe in the afternoon that other film you know he has a woman who basically undresses for him and he realizes he doesn't want to sleep with her and this is for me this was extremely important because you realize that though the code for all masculine behavior is to sleep with every woman who asks you to or at least to be available to every woman i was finding that i didn't want to sleep with all the women i knew and and this was a more this was the lesson that i learned so i'm sure it's an oblique lesson it's not the lesson that he meant to convey but that's what i understood and one of the things I tell this to my students as well is, don't worry about what the author wants you to understand. Understand, however misguided you are, what it is that you are getting out of this text, out of this novel, out of this poem. It's what you get that matters. Otherwise, you're just like, you know, like every other person who reads the same poem and has the same interpretation. Not a good idea. Um, oddly, I've been watching Romer's films recently um, oh. again after 25 or 30 years, and I now view them as films about young women. I find that I identify with the young women in, in the films and that the men are somehow peripheral figures. The thinkers in the films are the women, which may indeed be a complete misreading of, of Romer's intention. And misreading is something that you keep insisting on uh, yeah. in, in, in these essays. Um, I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. How, how do you think that that, that might have applied, um, or maybe still applies, in terms of some of the writers that you're uh, you're looking at here, with, with Proust, say, or uh, Zebald? Well, I'll give you two examples very fast. Uh, in Proust, there's a, a famous scene in which Proust, the young Marcel, is walking down the street and knows that the Swan family, luxurious as it is, lives in this building, and he looks up at the window and he says, I wish I could visit them and become friendly with them well soon enough he becomes a visitor he is admitted into that salon he's very much sort of loved by everyone and so he becomes an habitué in that salon and so one day he looks out the window at people who are arriving and says gee they're strangers they're what i used to be one day and then he has a thought and that thought is supplied by me not by bruce one day i will be outside again banished from this house and i will remember the days when i was an insider very comfortably hosted 
there's the same scene in Kavafi's poem of the bed. He 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 visits his old apartment, which now no longer has his bed in it where he used to make love, but it has become an office. And uh, in the poem, he remembers that he used to make love in this afternoon bed with the ray of sun crossing the bed when he and his lover were both naked. And he misses those days. His lover just disappeared one day. But I've added something else to it. This is how I misread. I've said that Kavafi would never have written this poem if he hadn't anticipated coming back to that same apartment one day and trying to remember what it was like when there was a bed there. So this is a dimension that I add. This is how I misread. But I think that mis my misreading is probably objectionable. It is mistaken clearly, but it helps me understand what has not been completely stated in that particular poem. And then the same thing with Proust as well. Um, your, your examples um, lead us uh, maybe in a, in a slightly different direction, which is to, to think about some of the essays that are more obviously, um, well, in some ways, all the essays in this book are, are autobiographical uh, to, to a degree, but some of them are, are geographically located um, as well as kind of located in, uh, in time. These are essays that, that find you kind of on the, on the streets of, of Rome, of Alexandria, New York, uh, Paris. Um, I wonder if Rome is, is the one that feels in a way, um, oddly, although not the city of your birth, feels like it's more charged and stands for something that you experience in all the other cities, which is a kind of folding of time? It might be because I go to Rome, I've been going to Rome until last March, about three times a year. So I've been very lucky that way. And I do like Rome. Uh, can I live in Rome? Absolutely not. I would not stand it for more than a month. And I have never been there for more than a month because that's the limit. Uh, so there's obviously a problem. And I started by detesting Rome when I first moved to Rome as soon as we left Egypt. So I had no love for the place. I couldn't wait to go to Paris because Paris was allegedly my home. And uh, but Rome was the place where I was staying and living. And I went to school in Rome and I hated Rome. Eventually, I got to love Rome. And how that happened, I have no idea. But obviously, I think that I must have projected a version of Rome on Rome itself, my Rome, whatever that my Rome is. But it allowed me to live in Rome. And eventually, I no longer see Rome. I see my version of Rome. And whenever Rome misbehaves and doesn't want to give me back my version, I cannot stand Rome. And eventually Rome always wins because it is what it is and it thrusts itself on you. And at some point you say, no, I don't like the way you are. I liked how I imagined or how I created you. And we do this with people too, by the way. The real person eventually manifests itself and we say, oh God, you are boring. I never liked you. Uh, why was I attracted? And this happens to us all the time. And, and it's, it's part of life. But the city that um, I was most mystified by was not Paris or Rome, it was St. Petersburg. Because when I was living in Rome, all I did was read books because this was my hideaway. I, since I didn't want to be in Rome, 
I was reading books and I basically consumed all of Tolstoy, um, all of Dostoevsky, especially Chekhov and Gogol and so on. And um, each one of them has a scene that takes place on Nevsky Prospect, that famous long street that rivals the Champs-Élysées or Fifth Avenue or whatever. And I wanted to go to, to Nevsky Prospect in order to walk in the steps of all those great writers that had obviously had a very powerful impact on me. But I wasn't seeing the city again. I was seeing Dostoevsky city. I was, and, and then eventually there's a famous story called White Nights, which is one of my favorite stories because it takes place along the canals. And I walked those canals trying to recreate what it is that Dostoevsky saw. And of course you can't. And so you should never do such a thing. But I did. And I was totally sort of conflicted because I was aware that I was not seeing the real St. Petersburg. I was seeing the one that I was inventing through Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And, but this is what we do, I think. This is what the Irrealist moment is. It's this inability to connect with what is in front of us, mostly because, not because we are unable to, but I think that because we don't want to, or because we fear the unavoidable disappointment that follows in the wake of a connection. I've always been disappointed by things, which is why I'm never enthusiastic, which is why I'm almost always in a sort of a disappointed person. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Um, I wonder if this might be a moment uh, to ask you uh, to read uh, a passage that seems in a way to, to kind of encapsulate probably most strands of, of what we've been talking about so far and thinking about time and place and memory. And... Um, yes, well, it's, it's, it's a passage that I wrote very late in the book. Uh, and I decided to include it because it's about a picture that my father took of me when I was 14 years old, and it's the last picture. I'm going to read the passage. It takes about five minutes. A picture that my father took of me is my last picture in Egypt. I was scarcely 14. In the picture, I am squinting and trying to keep my eyes open. The sun is in my face. And I'm smiling rather self-consciously because my father is chiding me and telling me to stand up straight for once while all I'm probably thinking is that I hate this desert oasis about 20 miles from Alexandria and can't wait to be back and heading to the movies. I must have known that this was the last time I'd ever see this oasis in my life, 
there is no other picture of me in Egypt after this one. To me, it represents the last instance of who I was two to three weeks before leaving Egypt. As I stand there in my typically reluctant, undecided posture with both hands hiding in my pockets, I have no idea what we're doing in this desert outpost or why I'm letting my father take my picture. I can tell my father is not pleased with me. I'm trying to look like the person he thinks I should be. Stand straight, don't wince, look decisive. But this is not me. Yet now that I look at the picture, this is who I was that day. I trying to be someone else or caught ever so awkwardly between who I didn't like being and who I was being told to be. When I look at the black and white photo, I feel for that boy of almost six decades ago. What happened to him? Whatever did he end up becoming? He isn't gone. Perhaps I wish he were gone. I've been looking for you, he says. I'm always looking for you. But I never speak to him. I seldom ever think of him. Yet now that he's spoken up, I'm looking for you too, I say, almost by way of a concession, as if I'm not sure I even mean what I've just said. And then it hits me. Something happened to the person I was back then in that picture, to the person staring at the father who is ordering him to stand up straight, adding, as he so frequently did, a cutting for once, as if to make certain his criticism landed where it could hurt. And the more I look at the boy in the picture, the more I begin to realize that something separates me from the person I might have become had nothing changed. Had I never left Egypt, had I had a different father or been allowed to stay behind and become who I was meant to be or even wanted to be. It's the person I could have become that continues to rankle in my mind because he's right there in the picture, but ever so hidden. What happened to the person I was actually working on becoming but didn't know I was about to become? because one never quite knows that one is indeed working on becoming anyone. I look at the black and white picture of someone over there and I'm tempted to say, this is still me, but it's not. It didn't stay me. I look at the picture of the boy posing for his father with the sun in his face and he looks at me and asks, what have you done to me? I look at him and I ask myself, what in God's name have I done with my life? Who is this me who got cut off and never became me the way I cut him off and never became him? He has no words of comfort. I stayed behind. You left, he says. You abandoned me. You abandoned who you were. I stayed behind, but you left. I have no answers for his question. Why didn't you take me with you? Why did you give up so fast? I want to ask him who of us two is real and who is not, and I know what his answer would be. Neither of us is neither of us. Great. Thank you. Um, the, the precision of that passage and the way it, you drift through the image is also so kind of laden with memories uh, for me as a reader um, of uh, other passages to do with photography in, in Proust and Sebald and uh, Roland Barthes and Nabokov. That moment of, of real strangeness of looking at a photograph of yourself as a, uh, as a child. Um, 
I'm looking at uh, some questions that are uh, arriving uh, as you're uh, speaking, and in fact, one of them was was going to be my my last uh, question, which is about essay writing. Um, mm -hmm. And one of, one of our audience, uh, Dima or Dima, asks, "How do you experience writing fiction versus nonfiction and the essay?" There is no difference, and anybody who claims there's a difference is actually misinformed, ignorant, or lying. I think that the forms meld into each other, they flow into each other. Sometimes when I start an essay, I have no idea it's an essay. I think it might even be a novella or a novel, who knows? And then it becomes an essay. And I like the fact that I'm always drifting from one form to the other. I would include, by the way, book reviewing, which you think is such a, a straightforward sort of craft. No, book reviewing is always, always about yourself. It's totally concealed, which is, I think, the genius of book reviewing, especially those that appear in the London Review of Books, for example. Those are long reviews that are really not about the book, but fundamentally about the author, though he's concealed behind the apparent excuse of writing about the book. And this is what I, I, I do all the time in everything I write. Um, I will begin an essay sometimes with, absolutely no knowledge of where it's headed. Just as I begin a, a short story or a novel or a novella, now I'm doing novellas, I don't know why, but I've done those. Um, I have no idea where it's going. And I will give you an example from the passage I just read. Uh, nobody ever speaks to the picture. I mean, you don't speak to your picture. You don't even think the things I've written there. But as you're writing, the writing takes over and has a dimension all of its own, almost, and I say the word almost with cause, it's almost like magic realism. The man talking to his picture, the picture talking back to him, him having a dialogue with the picture too. This cannot exist really. It doesn't exist when I look at my pictures as a child, but when you focus, then the, the form of the essay takes over and asks you to do things that you never thought you were going to do at all. But that's the wonder, I think, of writing, is that you allow yourself to sort of drift with whatever it is that is asking you to drift. And sometimes you're, it's a big mistake, but not always. And you have to know the difference between the two. Um, does the essay come with with its own particular constraints, though, in 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 terms of form? I mean, I know that you you have spoken and you've you've just said it uh, here now about um, approaching the writing of fiction, writing a novel, say, without a plan, without an outline. Um, can the same thing hold for uh, for a short essay? It has a horizon, just in terms of its its shortness, but something happens, anything might happen inside of that horizon? Well, it, no, I, I, I think that uh, it has no horizon. That's why it's, it's, it becomes a wonderful journey because you don't know if you're going to run into shoals, into rocks, into tempests. You have no idea. And it's troublesome because I wish I had the capacity to write an outline because then I'd know where I'm going. I've, oh, oh, I, this is, these are the steps I have to go through. I don't know how to write that way. And as I like to say, I write the way I do in order to find out the outline while I'm writing, not before. Um, and I think that there's something very dry in writing with an outline. 
In other words, you don't get lost. You don't have to sort of fumble and try to excavate yourself out of the hole you put yourself in in, in order to find out what it is that you're trying to say. Uh, one of the essays I wrote, which I think is the best one I've ever written, called Lavender. And, you know, halfway through, I was going to give up because I had no idea where I was going. And yet it's probably the most personal essay I've ever written. The person who asked the question about the essay has, has just um, said uh, in the Q&A, what you just read reminded me of your essay, Lavender. So there we are. <laughs> Symmetry, form. Um, so I'm going to go back to a, uh, the first question that came in. Uh, it's from Nelson, and uh, who asks, I really enjoyed your essay about um, when you, in the 1980s, went looking for the actual location from the film The Apartment. I recently read it and was short, sh shortly after watching the film. And he wants to know, did you really sit on the park bench? Oh, the park bench with C.C. Baxter sat, sat? Absolutely, I did. And I did Where do Baxter it. Baxter sits with the flu, yes. Yes, no, he, he got the flu. He already had the flu and he was sitting on the park bench. But here's the funny catch that you don't know about is that I've managed to contaminate my son, who is now 30 years old, and I've managed to make him like the apartment. And in fact, he told me one day that he went to sit on that bench to, uh, without knowing that I had, uh, because it's still there. The bench is still there and the street is still there, though the building has actually been displaced by Hollywood, but um, you still can go to 67th Street. And it's, it's basically this attempt to travel back to a time when the city was slightly different, was another city almost. There it is again. Uh, and New York changes so fast. And, and so I wanted to capture who I was when I was at this time in my life, unemployed or very poorly employed, and feeling that I was drifting through the city, through life, through time, and that I had no real ambition. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how I was going to start doing it. So there are some questions arriving um, kind of more broadly about your writing. Okay. Uh, Stephen Benson asks, why do you think that so many, with exceptions like yourself, why has so many writers who may not identify as LBG, LGBT write so seldom about same-sex desire? You mean people who are not LGBT? People or who are not. Yeah. Um, so Stephen not. says, I'm a gay man, and your descriptions of same-sex male, male love um, and sex ring true. The few others who even uh, write about it are risible in their accounts. Um, With the exception of Zabald, he says, interestingly. Zabald, does he write about LGBT issues? I, I don't remember, to be honest. I think but he writes then, in touches in places on attraction, if not actually, yeah, I'm unsure. Yeah. No, but I, I think that um, there are many things. Uh, when I wrote Call Me By Your Name, I started writing it, thinking it was going to be a romance between a man and a girl, a boy and a girl. And then I realized that they were going to have sex right away. And uh, this was not interesting. I wanted something that was insurmountable or maybe even ineffable. You, you, I wanted difficulty. And, and basically because I'm very much a 17th century scholar, 
though I never teach the 17th century, but in the 17th century, particularly in France, you have a, a playwright called Racine who's writing about impossible love, love that should not be, that is almost sinful, that is wrong, that, that you're trying to repress and cannot and are getting sick because you're repressing it. I love that model because the whole 17th century in France is like that. And so I wanted to um, invoke that. And the only way to do that was to have a same-sex story, particularly a young man who is not discovering that he wants to maybe perhaps want to have sex with a man. He knows it from the very first sentence. He wants to sleep with Oliver. There's no question that this is what he wants. Now, can a straight man write this? Absolutely. Why not? What is so different? If you think about it for a second, I don't think there's much difference. Um, I'm writing a, a novella, which is now being published uh, from the point of view of a woman, a woman who has been jilted. And I think I did a very good job. And I'll be very honest, I've never been a woman. Uh, so um, the, there's a, a writer has to be able, like all actors, to jump out of himself and see the world through the eyes of others. Otherwise, he only writes about what he knows, and that's quite dull. So there's another related question about Call Me By Your Name, um, uh, an anonymous question. I'm curious what the process was in relation to the film and your involvement in that. Uh, for example, the film's conclusion differed from and, and is arguably better than the novel itself. That's what every writer wants to hear, isn't it? Um, and I love the novel, says this questioner, just 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 so so, so you, you know. Um, so your involvement in the film and and the direction of the uh, the narrative uh, uh, of the film. Well, correction. I told the director that the ending of the film after I saw the film was better than the ending of my book. So I'm there with the person who said that and with everybody who thinks so. I think the ending of the movie was fabulous. It was absolutely stunning and arresting and surprising because it comes at a moment when you least expect it. I was not involved in the making of the film or in writing the screenplay, though I was very flattered to see that all the key scenes were taken right out of the book. In other words, the dialogue was from the book itself. They didn't have to rewrite it. But they told me that they were going to sort of trim out the passage about Rome because there's a whole chapter that takes place in Rome. And I said, okay, that's fine. Reduce it as much as you want. And then they said, well, and this is James Ivory and Luca Guadagnino when we're having coffee together. And they said, well, we're thinking maybe of really, really shortening that scene. I said, you do what you have to do. And then they said, third move, I think we're going to eliminate the scene altogether. I said, that's fine too. It's fine with me. I think that an author should not involve himself or herself in the making of a film because you've done your job, you've had your say, let somebody else have their say. And guess what? One of them is a vetted and long-standing, very respected movie, movie director. So he knows more than I do and will ever know. So I was very happy with the way the film turned out and with the fact that I was not involved. I was on the set for two days and that was it. Uh, here's another question about your fiction, um, another anonymous question. Which of your fictional characters do you identify most closely with? I would have to say two characters. The Alio is definitely one character that I identify with. 
I couldn't have come up with him without having been him. Um, but I also am very much the character in my other novel, Eight White Knights, which is uh, a, a man who is actually, I never gave him a name. So he's there, he's sort of totally fallen for this woman and he is totally paralyzed by the fear of rejection, by the fact that she has obviously got many lovers or has had many lovers, and he feels slightly sort of stifled and doesn't know where to go. And But that's me too. Um, we have a, another question. Does having Sephardic Jewish roots mean anything to you now and in your writing? It's interesting in the book that you talk a lot about place and about family, about background, but but not so much about religion. And I wonder, I wonder if you have an answer to that. There are many answers to that. I was thinking the other day that, and I've said this, that my ancestors, my father converted and became a Protestant for political reasons, because Egypt was not exactly hospitable to Jews. And my ancestors had, of course, converted to Christianity in Spain or Portugal because it was the thing to do. It, it meant that you were not going to be persecuted or burnt on the stake. Nevertheless, they had to escape. So going back 500, 600 years, I noticed that we've constantly been displaced and uh, constantly had to change identities, change languages, change so many things and change religions as well. So this, this, not the flexibility, but the fundamental disloyalty to what you are is sort of built into me. And I, I, I accept it. It's not exactly what we want to think of ourselves as being disloyal to our religion, to our nationality, to our mother tongue. I don't know what my mother tongue is. My grandmother used to speak Spanish to me sometimes when she was in a state of shock. Uh, and I would understand her Spanish, which was really Ladino, but she called it Spanish. And in a sense, that, that language has lasted for, you know, many centuries in the family. And it disappears in my generation altogether. And uh, I'm sorry to see that go, but that's how life is. Things disappear. The loyalties are sort of dissolved. You have new ones if you are able to have them. We have a question, another anonymous question. What are the must-read books you'd recommend for your students who want to become writers? Well, they have to read books by dead people. That's the number one rule. They have to have died. In other words, they have to have belonged to a different time zone altogether. Uh, one of the, I wrote my dissertation on a woman who's known as Madame de Lafayette. She was the uh, author of a novel that probably is still the most important novel, maybe the best novel ever written, called La Princesse de Clèves, uh, a very stunning book, brilliant book, short, very short. And uh, But I always recommend that book. I also recommend The Red and the Black because I think it sort of, and sort of dissects human motivation. And I think that uh, the other books are anything by Dostoevsky certainly matters, though it's old style, but it also exposes you to how to analyze what goes on in the head. It's what goes on in the mind that is more important to me, as opposed to what goes on on the street. Uh, I'm not interested in the street at all. And fun, and I always say to my students, which shocks them, because I say you have to read, of course, you have to read Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War, 
because it is an anatomy of stupidity and spite and silliness as you've never seen before. So I like that book a great deal and it has influenced me significantly. And of course, there's always Proust, that goes without saying, and Joyce and Pessoa. You know, these are all great writers, sublime writers. But not, if I can sneak this in, because I read this in an interview recently, but not Virginia Woolf. I don't mind Virginia Woolf. I think that her her book, the, the A Room of One's Own, is a brilliant piece of work. I also think that her diary is magnificent. Magnificent diary. Her novels, I don't think they'll stand the test of time. There's something very tiresome and sometimes not exactly profound in Mrs. Dalloway, which I really don't like. To the Lighthouse is okay, well, though I always you. ask people if they understood To the Lighthouse. And everybody says, yes, of course I do. And then I ask them a couple of questions and say, yeah, you're right. I guess it doesn't make sense. So there's that. But anyway. Um, I'm just going back to, there was a secondary question in one of the earlier ones, which uh, is interesting. Given how much of, of this book uh, is about thinking about the relationship between past, present and future and, and your own shifting identity in relation to earlier versions of yourself, do you reread your own work and experience it differently from when you first wrote it? I think it was Hegel, of all people, who once said, um, that a great thinker is somebody who knows their own work, has read their own work with sufficient uh, attention. What do you well, think? Do you read your own earlier? Time, well, the first time you read it, it's tragic, and the second time you read it, it's like farce. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think that's Marx quoting allegedly Hegel. Hmm. I don't like to go back to my old writings because I always find things that, how could you have written this? This is stupid. And I'm constantly doing that to myself. And I would frankly sort of rewrite entire passages because they're so gawky. So um, I try not to reread things that I've written. And there are times when somebody will, else will read something I've written aloud. And I say, oh my God, this is not bad at all. This still stands. Good, I'm happy. So it goes both ways, but I, I don't read myself. I, I, I don't want to, I don't have the time. Uh, there's a question about longing. Maybe this is a, a good question to, uh, to to end on. I love the element of longing in your books. Where does it come from? I'm not sure if it's a word that you use in these essays, but it seems completely apt. It is, it is. Uh, well, think about it this way. If you stop longing for things, longing meaning that you want something that you're not sure you'll ever have, that's why you're longing for it. Uh, if you stop longing, you're dead. Uh, it's that simple. Uh, and so I'm always longing for things. You know, I'm longing for a grapefruit or I'm longing for a person. I'm longing for somebody who's died. Uh, and this year I've had friends who have died and I long for them. Uh, I, and my whole life was articulated by longing by desire for things that may be impossible to have. Think of all the crushes we've all had in our life, the people we never even dared to speak to, uh, that we met at the bus stop or whatever, and you met them every morning and you long for them, you dream of them, and you ask yourself, are they longing for me too, but aren't saying it? 
And of course, they're longing for someone else, not you. And that is, I think that's the script of my life. But then I think that it's a script of everyone's life. And longing moves in all directions historically. Oh, yes. Oh, it has to. You long for things in the past, for the future, for so many things. I long for scenes in books, for scenes in movies. I wish that had happened to me. So that's longing too. Uh, you know you won't get them. If, if, if Otherwise, it's something else. It's not longing. Somebody once explained to me the difference between yearning and longing. Yearning is for something in the past and longing of something in the future. I don't know, but it makes sense up to a point. Thank you, Andre. Thank you, Brian. Really, thank you. And thank you for the LRB for having us uh, today. Uh, it's wonderful to, to be here. I wish I were in London, in that cave, if that was the case. But nevertheless, I wish it was London instead of this. Now I look out the window and I have 109th Street. So not exactly London. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.